0: Welcome to Have You Heard the AABP Podcast. My name is Dr. Fred Gingrich and I'm the Executive Director of AABP. Today we are joined by Dr. John Madney, who is a family practice physician from Montana. We're going to talk about meat as medicine and how a diet high in fat and protein, low in carbohydrates, and based on animal source protein is not only healthy but can be used to treat metabolic syndrome, obesity, high blood pressure, and other symptoms in people. We want to challenge you to try the carnivore diet for 30 days to see how you respond. Stay tuned for more information about how meat is medicine with our guest, Dr. John Madden. Okay, Welcome, John. So glad you could be with us here today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Thanks. This is John Madney. I'm a family practice physician in southwestern Montana, and I've had a long journey into dealing primarily with metabolic syndrome in humans, um, and that kind of grew out of the fact that almost all of my patients have metabolic syndrome, and originally I um, grew up on the south side of Chicago, but always wanted to be out in the so-called middle of nowhere and found my way to U- Utah State University. And while there, I worked for the range science department, which is now the, I believe, the wildland resources. And I was sort of the um, grunt out in the field, building fences, taking care of the livestock they were using for research purposes. And eventually I just had the itch to enter the real world so I literally jumped over the fence and got a job working on a big cattle ranch in the deserts of central Utah and while I was there I it was a very enjoyable experience although extremely lonely too and kind of got fascinated by doctoring cattle because we had a outbreak of pink eye and it was it was just Maybe think i want to be a veterinarian and so i went back to utah state and it was kind of funny because the pre-vet curriculum is very rigorous and well-defined as opposed to and so my degree in range science didn't meet the requirements for pre-vet and um, i wasn't actually a great student the first time through undergrad because i was um, spending too much time working for the range department instead of studying um Anyhow, my advisor said, if you get all A's, you have a shot at getting into vet school. And then I, so I proceeded to get all A's for the next two years. And um, it was a wonderful time of intense study in biochemistry and cell physiology. And we covered the animal nutrition. and But he also said, if you want to be a large animal vet, you'll never pay off your bills. Your, um, so I heard that. And. Um somehow I took that to heart and um, applied to medical school and got in. <laughs> um, and then went through medical school and ended up in southwestern Montana after a time in the Army. Life was going fairly good when I worked the emergency room where you would really, there was plenty of meaning in life. But then, as I my practice moved more and more into the clinic, it just I started to um, have a very low satisfaction situation, um, where it was another year, another pill. I am dealing with chronic progressive diseases. I start out with treating your blood pressure, then your cholesterol. Now your blood sugar is going up, and. Little did I know that the pills I was prescribing were, were causing the problem. The beta blocker, the statin, the diuretic, all were raising the blood sugar on average. Um, and I didn't know that. And um, then I read the book by Gary Tobbs. Yep. Good calories, bad calories. And I had enough background and enough... Um, experience with the livestock end of things. They ate well, they were healthy. You know, and granted, pink eye is not a nutritional disease that I know of. (laughs) Am I right? right? You are correct. (laughs) And so um, so you kinda had that sense that when nutrition is good, things are generally good. But in people there was something was wrong with the picture. I had done the super healthy whole grains. I kept telling my patients, don't if you don't eat any fat that's solid at room temperature, you're doing yourself a favor. And it's like, meanwhile, I look down and my belly's growing bigger and bigger. And i am got my liver biopsied for fatty liver because I was living the low-fat, high, healthy, whole-grain diet and dying. <laughs> and uh, so when I read Gary Todd's book, it was like, that is it. And I never looked up one single reference in his book. All I do now is look up insulin, any chronic disease, and divide, find a um, uh, how it's the biology of it. And um, that sort of gives me the wherewithal to share with my patients, get your insulin down and you will thrive. And that's... That's what my practice has become. That is that's, um,
0: that's so interesting, John. And and you you mentioned a little bit, and I and I'd like you to touch on this. And I've heard you use the term drug stacking. T- talk a little bit about those patients you see and what that means with drug stacking. You know when these, you know, how does that influence metabolic syndrome?
1: All right. Um, how did, it, it's interesting, Gerald Reven was the one who coined the term metabolic syndrome. And he also wrote about how medications aggravate metabolic syndrome. So, um, what happened was, uh, that when you take something like, uh, statin, it is known, just Google statin and, um, type two diabetes, um, and you'll see that statins increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. Um, many beta blockers do, um, except for one or two. Um, diuretics do, um, and then a lot of psychiatric meds. And so, but some of those those are foundational meds that we use all the time. That um, will as you add the drug, you need more drug. Um, And there's some drugs like sulfonylureas that are used to treat um, diabetes that hold your insulin level up (laughs) so that at the price of lowering your blood sugar, you gain weight. And so it's a, a terrible thing that the more you add drugs, the more you need drugs. And the gentleman who, the scientist who coined metabolic syndrome wrote about it, but it's not ever taught. You know, and so But the same token, if you start working on metabolic syndrome, you have to carefully withdraw medications if you're prescribing it at a um, uh, a therapeutic dose of um, ketogenic diet. Yeah, and we,
0: you know, I I think it's interesting because... uh, I spent most of my time, in when I was in practice, uh, on dairies, on dairy farms, and you know, uh, metabolic syndrome in dairy cows is you know a relatively common disease. Not the most common disease we see in dairy cows, but you know, it occurs when there's management uh, um, issues that can influence um, intakes on cows. Such as maybe there's too many animals uh, based on the size of the feed bunk or something of that nature. Uh, Or uh, a classic example is a cow that has we call it excess body condition. We body condition score our patients. It's mm-hmm, probably mm-hmm. not appropriate uh, for humans. Um, I but, can eyeball <laughs> it. You can yes. do it with eyeball. Yeah. And so we body condition score uh, you know, our our cows and the ones that have excess body condition score are at incredibly high risk for this. And they basically just circle the drain with, you know, um, uh, end up with hepatic lipidosis and yeah. uh, you know have a high risk of calling, etc. But we don't manage that with drugs. Uh, we go in and we first address management and nutrition, fix the diet, and the problem will resolve. So why isn't this catching on? And I think it is gaining some traction in the human medical community, but why isn't this catching on that, you know, when we diagnose a person with type 2 diabetes,
1: that we don't uh, just fix it with diet? Yes, and that's because somewhere along the way, medications were found to address it. And um, the idea of checking insulin levels has, I I can say, I think I'll go ahead and say it, it's been suppressed. Because I'll just be honest, I asked somebody on the board of the American Diabetes Association when I was first learning about this, Back when I went to um, standard medical meetings, which I don't go to anymore, um, the ones that are funded by drug companies, um, and there was an evening session um, sponsored by a drug company, and um, one of the American board, or the, not the American board, I'm sorry, the um, eight, from the American Diabetes Association, one of the board members was giving the talk, and after the talk I said to her, um, what do you think about checking insulin levels? And she got angry and said, "Why would you want to do that?" Um, that's all she said. And I, it was one of the, there are certain times in life when I don't talk too much. I just instantly knew I have my answer. I touched a nerve and I walked away, because if you knew that people with when they're diagnosed with type two diabetes early on which may be 20 years early on, your insulin's high. you just have to man- manage your in your blood sh- I'm sorry manage your insulin with your diet and then you will get the normal blood markers. Your hemoglobin A1C will normalize, your fasting blood sugar will get down around a 100, maybe lower if you manage your insulin well. And it's a dietary problem with a dietary solution, but people aren't taught that, and the what they're coming out with drugs like and advertising them, making it harder for us to pull the um, pull out the um, nutritional solution. Yeah, and I think you it, know it's intended, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and I think that 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 has been. Um, um, you know, when I look well, first off, it's very hard to change your lifestyle. You know, we have we have the, the amount of you know, when I look at I've had conversations with people about the benefits of eating meat and that's kind of what we're or animal source protein. Yeah. Uh and, and and you know, I've had people tell me, Well, you know, there's such an increased incidence of coronary heart disease, CHD, uh why do we want people to eat more meat? And I have told people I've said, Yeah, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the consumption of beef Okay, poultry consumption has increased in this country significantly, um, uh, um, uh, pork uh, a bit, and beef consumption has declined since the mid 70s. But we have an increased number, uh, an increased amount of obesity, an increased amount of metabolic syndrome, and an increased amount of coronary heart disease in this country with declining beef consumption. Why are we blaming animal fat on these diseases? And not the increased consumption of carbohydrates. Right,
1: Um, and the thing—an interesting one that I haven't um, heard pointed to—is if you look at the consumption of red meat in Argentina, Mm -hmm. which is a—it's a very heterogeneous group of people, lots of different ethnic background, um, with and I and they have the same longevity as we do. And their smoking use, I think, is at least as much as in the U.S. And so, if when you have a country where there's like a where they, I think it's they have such a large amount of red meat consumption without a signal for harm, and then you see that um, the things that you might associate with, you know, that have been associated with red meat consumption, let's say some cancers. They are so insulin related, and you can drive the insulin down just eat meat and enjoy fat, and your insulin level just goes down. and um, And I've been prescribing basically more carnivore than ever because you want people to get success right away, right? And if you're getting a, if you're eating a big bowl of salad, um, you can uh, you can. Prevent success <laughs> because you you think oh it's all free and it's like well you can eat enough non starchy veggie to interfere with your control of your diabetes. Is,
0: so. And is that what you do when you see when you see a patient that is diagnosed with type two diabetes? Do you, I mean, is the is the intervention low carb, no carb? Uh, you know, how do you when they're initially come in and they've got a you know do you. Do you check insulin? Is that your primary Absolutely. thing
1: that you're checking? Yeah, mm-hmm. because I just had, see, that's when I actually don't know how people really practice well without it because I had a guy come in, Haven't he says, I haven't seen you in five years. I've been doing the general diet that you told me. I'm losing weight, and then his blood sugar is 350. You check an insulin level, and it's way under 10, and it's like, oh, you need insulin now you know, you can't, you were losing weight because you're urinating out sugar. And so if somebody thought that he was capable of making enough insulin, they would be going down the wrong track instead I'm checking antibody levels, seeing if he has um, adult onset type 1 diabetes in his 50s. I mean, yeah. And so, so knowing the insulin level is so important, but usually I just say no sugar, no starch for the average person. The ones that I do the carnivore for is somebody that's um into the diabetes range and i meet them when they're weighing 400 and some pounds and i first step in treatment is prescribing oxygen because they might die in their sleep tonight Mm. those are the people i just say let's go for it because no and i don't feel like anybody's scrutinizing me when i meet somebody in our walking clinic or and who's like on death's door from metabolic syndrome, you know, massively obese, and say, oh, why don't we do this? And I have the feeling that nobody's going to report me for being a bad doc because they don't even want to be have their name on that person's chart. So I love all the people that look like they're, um, uh, I don't know how to say it, uh, that nobody would want to take care of and nobody would admit it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and those are where you get your good stories. Yes, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and and so you know, let's let's talk a little bit about hyperinsulinemia. Um, what 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 is your experience? Well, well, first off, let's start off like, what's your target for fasting insulin level? Because I've seen a broad range of things, and it always seems like the levels sometimes the, the lab reference levels seem to be high with some of the doctors I've talked to that are promoting a, a carnivore or a low-carb diet, you know, and then how do you compare that uh, insulin level with fasting glucose?
1: Great. Um, thankfully, I could control the um, normal value at our lab, what's on the paper. Mm-hmm. And so if your insulin level is over 10, you don't really need to calculate a HOMA-IR, the um, which is a measure of insulin resistance. Okay. Okay. Um, because over 10 is kind of high, you know, I mean, whereas if it's under 10, you start looking at what your fasting blood sugar is, and you can put it into the formula for the, um, uh, that the home IR, the homeostatic model, um, to assess insulin resistance. <laughs> um, uh-huh. and ideally once you, and once you hit five, then I think, um, I can't make you any better by lowering your insulin. And so if you have a manifestation of um, hyperinsulinemia, let's say hypertension, well, i got to add a drug because it can't get under five. I can't tell somebody that they probably could do better with the lower insulin. But five sort of my, in my mind, magic number um, where below five probably don't need to calculate the insulin resistance above 10 probably don't need to calculate and in between it's kind of fun to get a number and say oh your insulin resistance score is going down is that useful if
0: you're investigating like a person that is what they call quote-unquote pre-diabetic you know like like a person that has been going to the doctor okay and mm-hmm. their fasting blood glucose is consistently 110 you know yeah. it's not it's not ideal and the doctor in the report says you're pre-diabetic but there's no insulin level done. It'd be useful to have that insulin level if the insulin is pretty high. How would
1: how would you go about that? Oh, then I would check. I always check the insulin level of somebody. I'm, we do it at our health fair here at our hospital, and they've been supportive of um, the insulin hypothesis, um, is saying you may never get to diabetes because, Your insulin levels up, and your body can continue to put out enough insulin to keep your blood sugar in the pre diabetic range, but you're going to have the um, problems with increased blood pressure, fatty liver disease, heart failure. That was one of my, is um, a lot of that's driven by hyperinsulinemia um, because insulin tends to make the heart beat faster and. more forcefully, and um, the whole fatty liver thing. So basically looking at people that are pre-diabetic and saying, you may never meet the criteria for diabetes, but you need to change your diet so that we don't have to keep adding the meds. Um, and I also get into the, um, if people have a high LDL cholesterol, then I encourage them, I'll just throw out the, get a coronary calcium score because like it keeping people off of statins while addressing the um, guidelines, trying to walk the guideline while keeping them off the statin. You often need a coronary calcium score to say you don't need the statin. Um, and even the American Heart Association, I think, has acknowledged that you can you can do that.
0: <laughs> right, right. And you you touched on a little bit, so, you know, I, I really, you know, I find this whole – uh, conversation and some of the uh, published uh, uh, published research I've read on insulin and, and the dietary effects on that, and when we have people with hyperinsulinemia, have you seen other syndromes that you think are associated with hyperinsulinemia? You know, you mentioned heart disease, blood pressure, but I heard you on uh, Dr. Sean Baker's podcast, and he's the one that connected me uh, to you. Yeah. Um, And I heard you talking about carpal tunnel syndrome and some other things. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. What are some other things that could be associated with, you know, a a fasting hyperinsulinemia?
1: Uh, That's a good question because you get the old orthopedic issues where, for for instance, a guy, one of my patients that I picked found in the walking clinic that didn't have a doc and was new in town and weighed 400 and some pounds. And when he was on, he got did the carnivore for one week and was talking about how he didn't have pain in his lower extremities anymore. Yeah. And the, the, it, it, and I love, okay. So we're basically saying um, that you don't need to do the weight loss to get a lot of the um, orthopedic relief um, when the, it, we assume, or I assume that you get the insulin down. It's a general body diuretic. It, um, gets fluid out of places it shouldn't be like in the carpal tunnel <laughs> you know maybe that's the closest analogy to um a founder in a horse you know is right like, yeah get the fluid out of a place where there's no room for expansion and um so you get all that um degenerative joint disease um symptoms decrease with it, the aches and pains of orthopedics and then we haven't touched on the um uh whole rheumatologic improvement with um i've had a patient who um clear-cut rheumatoid arthritis with all the biomarkers carnivore significant improvement i mean dramatic you know and every once in a while you meet somebody where you can give them that advice and they say um you know it took a lot for me to even bother to talk to an allopathic doctor and um after they got the advice they said catch you later but i don't think i need allopaths anyway <laughs> you know it's like you know one doctor visit and they you know i've i'm in touch with the person socially but they never came back but they should feel it better yeah. and then you get the whole psychiatric stuff which um shoot it's kind of crazy um and the neurologic so it's that's where the um uh People have to get into, seriously get keto. Um, and if you want to do neurologic keto or psychiatric keto, in my mind, you really, and you want to maintain your muscle mass, you got to go animal animal product. Because I've working with a guy um, who, well, we basically need, what I'm saying is, if you're ketogenic and just living on fat, you do want to maintain your muscle mass. Well, you want to minimize your protein so that you don't get too much glucose out of the protein. How do you do that? Eat the best quality protein. What's that? It's animal protein. Does that make, I might've covered too much ground there, but no, it makes glucose. glucose. Yeah. Yeah. Protein is because there's only two um, ketogenic amino acids. And there's some that can take two paths. So when you eat protein, it ends up in biochemically, it will take a path through to be glucose or function as glucose. Because now I'm getting into the biochemistry cycles where I have to be careful, you know, not to dig too deep. But what I'm saying is is that if you really want to get serious keto for the brain, you better eat high-quality protein or it's going to be tough you're going to get skinny or something that you're going to lose your muscle mass unless it's yeah, the nice. best quality protein.
0: Absolutely. I think all of our listeners will agree
1: with you on that. And, and that actually that's what something I'd like to talk to Chris Palmer about, which one of these days, because he's done me great good. You know, Chris Palmer? No, I don't. Um, oh, he's a um, psychiatrist from uh, Harvard? Yeah. Uh, he wrote a book, Brain Energy, and it's about treating psychiatric conditions um, with uh, keto. And basically, you can the a lot of brain conditions, whether it's neurologic or psychiatric, have there's mitochondrial dysfunction. It's sort of like a manifestation of metabolic syndrome in the brain. And um, he wrote the book, and it's like, yeah, but did the one thing that might not have been covered in there is if you start adding in too much plant material, are you going to get the high ketone level and maintain the muscle mass? And I don't think that got covered in his book. And a lot of times I listen to these books and it's just like uh, scanning a book to see if there's something new in there that I have to refine my thoughts on. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've been studying this before there were um uh conferences on keto you know where I was alone and so it was once you start going to these conferences you can meet like minded people but and you keep saying what am I missing what am I missing you know
0: yeah and I've uh You know i i interact with a lot of aabp members and then you know through social media and things like that and uh i have myself personally uh for several years i've i've dabbled in low carb then keto and and carnivore and right now i'm doing strict carnivore um and the one thing that i notice every time i do it is that i my aches and pains go away i do i do crossfit exercise and uh even after incredibly strenuous exercise, especially repetitives. We did the other day in the gym, we did 180 squats and 80 lunges, and my legs should feel like jello today, and they don't. They feel fine. And is that just the fluid? Is that uh, inflammation? Is that glycogen? What is that? Lactic acid? What do do you think that is? I've heard that from everybody that does carnivores that they're not sore. Um, what, Uh. What are your thoughts on that?
1: maybe it's evolutionary and we don't quite get it is that the people that to be a good hunter gatherer that had to be true.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was
1: natural selection for that. What you just said, you know, it was like, because you had to be able to eat a ton and then, um, go a few days without eating and then run down the critters. Because that's something I've learned Years ago, is like a human does have incredible endurance potential. I bet a million bucks I could take a horse, buy a lead rope, and hold on to that lead rope until the horse fell dead. And I don't mean that; I would never do that. But yes, <laughs> I think I could do it. I think a human could do it easy. Just go hike up a, um, just try to go rim to rim at the Grand Canyon with a mule, and I bet it'd drop dead near. <laughs> the lead rope, <laughs> yeah. you know, but a human can do that rim to rim to rim in a day. Yes. But I don't think a mule could. So, um, so I think it's just the way we are is that, because I've experienced that too, is like this, no, no ache pain. And probably the best thing I've had is that my cold endurance has increased. Like this morning, one of my patients said, did you ride to your bike to work today? And it's like, yeah. And he goes, it was five degrees out. And like, oh, oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I checked the temperature to know how to dress, but I was yeah. overheated, and my mouth used to get frozen riding um, in this kind of weather. I would never ride below 10 degrees. Now um, it's no problem keeping, um, I, because I'm keto, I think the respiratory quotient says, you don't have to move as much air so your mouth and nose don't get so cold biking when it's 0 I mean it really is it really I didn't even think about the temperature other than hmm it's just a little chill but it was no work yeah, yeah. so that and pain thing is a real thing and yeah. that gets into the rheumatologic why did one of my patients said you know my rheumatoid arthritis instantly gets better if i fast and um, carnivore, from an inflammation standpoint, is you'd have to put it in the category of fasting. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
1: That could be a little bit not true. You know, I mean, if you drew blood on somebody, they there is an insulin response to eating meat. And, you know, but insulin is inflammatory. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah,
0: good point. And, and the other thing that people always tell me, you know, when I tell them, well, I'm, you know, uh, Eating meat only, and they're horrified. That's usually the first, uh, <laughs> the first look, yeah. and they're always like, "Oh, you're going to clog up your arteries." You know, they also ask me, "What's my cholesterol level?" Um, and uh, my cholesterol actually went down when I significantly yeah. increased my red meat consumption, particularly. They, you know, why are we, uh, so focused on saturated fat, LDL cholesterol level? instead of insulin. Yeah. Why, why is that? Because it seems to me that it's insulin that's increasing mortality in these, in these people that are on these high-carb diets versus, you know, it, it's not the cholesterol, et cetera, that's causing these
1: problems. Is that correct? Yeah. I, that's the thing that um, if you go back historically, you can see that it was a red herring to label um, saturated fat as a problem. And to get into this whole cholesterol bit, and um, and it's the cholesterol. I look at the lipid profile, um, and I read into it immediately. You look at the triglycerides and the HDL, and um, and you learn from that about the insulin resistance. But the LDL, a lot of people, the LDL goes down on the diet. Yeah, you know, even though the average is up a little bit if you take the individual and do individualized medicine a lot of times everything gets better and then um the yeah it's just such a sad thing looking historically and probably one of the biggest things that threw us off track was when they actually did some trials with the um on fat the minnesota coronary experiment and the sydney trial and the one done in sydney australia are you familiar with that one? No, I am not. Oh, where they had folks do, this was back in 19, oh, around 1970, 68, 1970. It was a eat-as-you-were diet or a, um, a seed oil supplemented diet. And the difference in the um, uh, death rates, this was before statins and before um, and Ace inhibitors or ARBs, um, a lot of good drugs that have utility. <laughs> I wouldn't want to practice without them. Um, before those drugs, back around 1970, in Sydney, Australia, they had this group of people that had heart attacks under age 65, and the death rate among the people who were on the usual diet, which I assumed assumed was quite a bit of lamb and saturated fat, they had 11% death rate. And the ones on the supplemented with um, seed oil was something like 17% death rate. Mm. I mean, huge. And, um, and if that had been published, and if um, uh, the, this, there were like three studies that showed that it's basically, you could say from those studies, saturated fat is a, not an issue. That would have been so huge because then Gerald Reaven, the guy that the um, scientist who coined metabolic syndrome, wouldn't have um, lived in confusion because he wrote a diet book um, where he said that for people with metabolic syndrome, the American Heart Association diet is deadly. That was two thousand and four. <laughs> But he wrote about the confusion, and this was honest confusion when those studies hadn't been published, where people had accepted that saturated fat was bad, and that high cholesterol, just a cholesterol number was meaningful unless it was broken down. And he said, well, they were really stuck. If fat's bad and carbs are bad, what do we do? And then once those studies came out like 10 years ago now, or eight years ago, then or that buried data in effect, it changed things so much because then you say, well, this solved the problem. There wasn't a paradox. There is no French paradox because butter is the thing. You know, I mean, it's the good thing and all the margarines were the toxin. (laughs) You know, I mean, it, it was really so crazy to think that you could hydrogenate something, make it into a chemical... That theoretically could have killed you, you know. Is well, seriously, what would happen if you could absorb something into your body and then you didn't have the enzyme system to break it down? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That could. I, that's something I did wonder about as a, um, back in the pre-vet days. Was how's this supposed to work if you um, chemically modify something? What if it would turn into something that would get to the liver and then? not have the right enzyme to get rid of it. I mean that's called toxin. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. Yeah. yeah. So.
0: One of the things that I was wanted your your opinion on too uh, John was, you know, in in cattle medicine there's a lot of research right now on epigenetics and, you know, what we feed the mama cow and how that influences a lot of times, lifetime productivity of the calf, and then also even, or how we manage the mama cow, and then even after that calf is born, you know, right in, you know, in the first few days of its life, how some of the things that we do could impact lifetime productivity and health, et cetera, et cetera. Talk a little bit about, you know, is there a role for that in humans, is, 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 the metabolic, the increased metabolic syndrome we're seeing in the human population—is that can that be generational?
1: One hundred percent. Because this is a grief, and I. I oh, um, if I just look at my family, and the harm that's been done to my kids, because I learned this when they were um, getting leaving home, and they grew up on. I have a, had a pedal-powered grain mill. All sorts of different grains. I would make healthy whole grain, quick breads, pancakes, waffles, muffins, um, homemade whole wheat bread, and that's what they grew up on for breakfast. Was healthy whole grains with maple syrup because or honey because we don't use processed sugar and not much butter, not much. Meet at breakfast hardly ever, and they are not well. Yeah, I mean it's so sad, and I know it's epigenetic. You know, I mean because I had a totally high carb, sugar laden diet growing up as a kid. Not for my parents. I grew up with a beautiful home cooked food, but I grew up in a, um, in a, part of town on the south side of Chicago where I could get donuts, candy. And soda any time, and I always had money when I was a kid because um, I hung around construction sites and I'd be a gopher, and you get nickels, and nickel was a bottle of pop, and I'd go run and hide, and drink it, and you know, and go like I was doing drugs, and so, but I didn't get metabolic syndrome until I was forty. Uh, Other than hypertension, but so anyway, the epigenetics is so real, and it's so sad, and the kids are so much sicker than their parents. It's incredible, and that's not hyperbole. Just look at the um, the metabolic syndrome going up, weight in kids. It's it's terrible, and during COVID, things got so worse. Yeah. Um, It's yeah, and so I'm. I know it's it's got to be true because. When I was in the Army delivering babies 20-some years ago, I, didn't, I don't even remember dealing with one low-blood-sugar baby. I don't even remember anything to do with diabetes and pregnancy. And it's like, and granted, the obstetricians did the high-risk patients, but it was still not a part of um, the whole scene. I, I, it's so changed. I wouldn't want to, you know, I assist my colleagues when, on C-sections and but I don't do OB anymore, and it's like, this is very different. Epigenetics is real, and that's why I wonder why people even worry that much about genetics anymore from a, um, from a human standpoint, because we're so perturbed. I mean, knowing your genome, I'm not sure how that's real relevant. Right,
0: yeah, yeah. The other thing people say to me when
1: I'm uh, doing
0: carnivore And uh, this is just something that seems to be one of those things that just gets repeated all the time, and then we take it as fact, uh, and that is fiber. You know, I I eat no fiber at all, And, um, and, and people think that that's terrible for gut health, it's terrible for your microbiome, your gut isn't healthy on this myself personally i mean that's the other thing i noticed you don't produce a lot of waste when you eat just carnivore versus if you're eating indigestible food i mean that's what's wonderful about the ruminant right because we can yeah. feed them grass <laughs> but yeah, then we and- eat salad and think it's healthy because we poop a lot or something like that mm-hmm. do, do you have to have fiber to have a healthy gut
1: no um and the reason why i say that that that's more anecdotal but um how it's sort of like how come people are healing inflammatory bowel disease with carnivore? Yeah, and um, the whole the the sense of well being when I don't eat meat is pretty incredible. And I this is the irony is like I'm one of the big time gardeners in town. Uh huh. Because of I've been in town long enough; people know where my garden is. You can see it. If you go for a drive and on a Sunday afternoon, you'd see it. Um, if you come into our neighborhood, because it's at the, uh, a circle at that dead end of the road. <laughs> so I garden as cover, <laughs> uh, but I feed the products to the chickens of the deer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we do. I, I, mean, I'm. It's not a hundred percent. I mean, but it's. Um, you still start wondering about the whole. Um, uh, when you start eating just the meat and then seeing how dramatically people get better from their psyche to their bowels, to their waistline, to their numbers, and it's like, oh, wow, where did this, were vegetables even a thing that rich people ate to get sick?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the other thing that I have found interesting is that people, the- classic or or you know well accepted theory is that you know for weight loss you have to restrict calories and and that goes back to Gary Tobb's book of course um uh you know good calories bad calories and i don't i don't count calories um when i'm on well i just don't count calories anymore period i eat to to satiety eating meat um, yeah and i and i usually only eat two meals a day um uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and big meals. And I remember Sean Baker told me when I started carnivore, he goes, You gotta really make sure you eat enough meat that you don't want anything else to eat. Um and that has worked for me. You know, what about, you know, low calorie, low fat type diets versus, you know, carnivore and eating the satiety? Because you get filled up on that diet, right? Versus the right. high carb diet, you seem to be hungry right away after you eat it.
1: Yeah, well, I have experience with the low calorie diet because actually, um, I've done it and succeeded um, in getting the weight off and healing my liver because I do think that um, the healing the liver is a weight; it correlates directly with weight. Um, mm-hmm. But but the neat thing was was the natural experiment was um, I got my weight off. About forty pounds through grit, and um, which, and it's not the most healthy thing to do. I wouldn't recommend it. And then when I started teaching my patients about um this, I'd already done my weight loss. I switched to a um, a sugar starch free diet, which is light duty keto for real. I mean, it's measurable ketones, but not big time. Then I got rid of my blood pressure pills. So it was like, oh, you were, you lost the weight, kept, and, but you didn't get off your pills till you lost the carbs. Mm. And that was true, you know. So the, um, losing weight by low calorie, I think it's worse than people think. For, um, I don't think it's good for you to lose weight that way. It's Um, also miserable. Yeah, and as opposed to, um, I, um, I've done a couple experiments recently on myself. One was a four-day fast for cancer. Um, I don't have the cancer, but I was imagining counseling, and I'm working on getting my first cancer patient um, to add to the chemo, radiation, surgery plus keto. You know, because I'm seeing these people come back really miserable with neuropathy, and it's like. They're saying that the keto can help with the neuropathy. So anyway, I'm, I did the imagination of what's it like to get into keto when um, for cancer, or let's say your normal metabolism. How do you get keto? And um, I did great for through it being sharp, and I got I worked incredible hours, and it's like day after day working and not eating, and you're on top of it. How do you do that? Um, And then uh, I did another week, last week, I did a pushing myself saying, can I not lose weight carnivore and be in neurologic therapeutic ketosis? Because I have a patient who's underweight that needs therapeutic ketosis. And I was seeing, could if I haven't done it, how could my patient do it? You know, I mean, it's really interesting to have to really take, like, weeks at a time to experience a certain, like, who are you working for? Because the easiest one is the pre-diabetic. That's a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, you just get rid of the sugar and starch and you're fixed. Um, uh, is And uh, it was really hard to do therapeutic ketosis for neurology and not lose weight. But I did it. <laughs> but it was a pretty full week. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, to concentrate. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, what the, the idea that to eat to satisfaction, and y'all, I think you do need to do that. You don't want to um, eat to satisfaction on just meat, making sure there's fat there. That is, that is a really feel-good state to be in. Um, and uh, I, I've had patients that didn't eat enough. Like I had a lady come in and my hair is falling out, and it's like, well, you didn't, you're not eating enough, <laughs> um, and that was a fun one because I didn't prescribe it, but they came to me because they I, they heard that I wouldn't um, give them a hard time. We want you to be our doctor because you won't look down on us. It's like great, <laughs> and then actually, and in my, in my, in my all my colleagues that I work with in our hospital, they would not. I don't think they would um, look down on that. And one of my colleagues say to me, I read your notes because she's a pharmacist. And it's like, I see what you're recommending these people. And so my husband and I, and then the next thing is, in a couple months we lost 50 pounds together, and he just had a knee replacement, and boy, did that go smooth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, a, I mean, I had a hip replacement and didn't lose an ounce. And when I was free to get back on my bike, it was like I rode to work like I didn't lose anything, you know, with six weeks off. It's crazy, you know. Um, I just wish more people were – how do you tell people that their mood is better because of the way they're eating? Because they could easily spin it that life is better and the news is better.
0: Yeah. It's I, agree. True. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I agree. Which which brings me to my final question, John, because <laughs> I have, de- you know, our listeners, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, are, are cattle veterinarians primarily and mixed animal veterinarians. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're really proud of the fact that we take care of cattle for a living, you know, make them healthy and we're providing a, a nutritious food source. But we also get beat up all the time that, Beef is terrible for you, and we should limit consumption, and et cetera, et cetera. So, do you think meat is medicine? Because you seem to be using that more than pills uh, to treat patients that have metabolic syndrome and associated other diseases.
1: Yeah, as long as you see meat as, for most people, meat as a, um, gives you all the food you need, need without extra energy. Um, it, it's, a, I wouldn't be able to practice without it. I was, when I re, I got a, I should have said this almost in the introduction. When I read Gary Taub's book, I thought it's time to get, hang up my, or to quit medicine and to move back East where land prices are more commensurate with, um, agricultural value. Around here, it's too beautiful where I live to, um, to make it, to buy land for ag, and um, just raise beef, and um, call it good. Well, I started seeing my practice came alive quicker than I could, you know, call a real estate agent in Missouri. <laughs> uh, so, but it meat is I couldn't practice without it, and I'm just am hearing enough people talking about carnivore that it's getting ahead of the fact that the establishment is promoting sugar-sweetened breakfast cereals over meat, and that might be a tipping point where you say, okay, if you listen to a so-called authority, you have a problem. Because you better listen to somebody like, I'll say it, like me, who every time I give advice, I I make less money than if I would have written a prescription. And the reason, um, so it, I lose money to have um satisfaction in my work. And that's and meat is animal products are the medicine and it's basically you got your meat and then you need your what dairy is really good for the number one thing of dairy is of course is the cream. You know. Yeah. Um because that's the part that you can't substitute because there is... There ain't enough fat to go around, <laughs> and uh, um, butter and cream is just wonderful. And um, so, so anyway, the what this is what I wish for the producer would to say. You know, I am doing the world a world of good, um, and people don't realize it that the animal husbandryman gives up, or woman gives up their well-being on the day-to-day because their cattle, their livestock comes first. And I had a guy once said, I'm leaving the ER, I have to take care of my cattle. Even though I'm having a heart attack, they have to be taken care of. And he did, and he came back and he got his calf and stent the next day. But what would be the point of living if they aren't cared for? So it's, a, it's just an amazing thing that meat is medicine. The animal has people taking care of the livestock, doing a wonderful job. And I, we have to put in a plug for, I hope this is okay, for yeah. Temple Grandin took care of the critters when they left the people that, they, when the critters were leaving the caretakers who loved them and had to make the transition to, through the slaughterhouse, they did need somebody there, I believe to take care of them when they were no longer under a benevolent caretaker. I hope I was okay to say, because really to me there was livestock can heal the soil, livestock heal the people and they can, and it's done with much less cruelty than a field cultivator does when it goes through and does wipes out every living thing in the top eight inches of soil. Um, there you have it. I mean, it's just complete healing, and uh, I've decided that life doesn't start in the soil. Changed my mind. Life starts in the rumen. Yes, <laughs> that's I love the that. center of that's the center of life, and then what comes out the rear end goes into the soil and come, you know. But because I heard a talk, Peter Atia interviewing, it. oh, I'm forgetting his name. Um, uh, uh. uh, uh, uh protein scientist, and he taught Peter, Peter Atiyah so much, including that you put in, you get a lot more protein out of the rumen than you put in it. Absolutely. And it's like, that's the miracle. And it was like, I knew that. I knew that for years, but I never um, emotioned it till I heard that. And it's like, oh, the rumen is... The center of the universe. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we would agree with that as cattle veterinarians that meat is medicine and the rumen is the center of the universe. Uh, John, re- of course, one more thing, is have got to put in a plug for the piggy, is that yeah. they have to snarf up all sorts of stuff to make bacon. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and chickens have to make eggs. So, I mean, let's not.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: All <laughs> I don't want to be. To be too one-sided.
0: So that's right. That's right. So I would I would challenge our listeners. You know, really, you know, uh, think about, especially if you out there are listening and you're maybe struggling with type two diabetes or metabolic syndrome or you're 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 having pain, et cetera, et cetera. Try carnivore for a month. I did that, and I was amazed at what it uh, did to my mood, as John said, did to the way my body felt, my digestive health. Uh, I wasn't hungry. Um, it is a pretty simple diet to do. If it comes from an animal, eat it uh, for the most part. Uh, you do need to be careful about overeating certain things, but, but it does work. Uh, meat is medicine, and I'm really glad that we have uh, friends in our medical community that are promoting the products uh, that we help produce. Uh, um, and so, John, thank you so much for participating. Really
1: appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.